0: Good morning. Okay, boy, and you guys got an extra hour sleep, right? Oh my goodness! What would have happened had it been spring? Hey, we are in First Thessalonians. We're in chapter five, and we are closing out uh, this letter that Paul wrote to this young church in Thessalonica. And so uh, we've covered a lot over the last couple of weeks. Uh, as we closed out chapter 4, we opened up chapter 5, we, we dealt with, touched on some uh, issues of eschatology, you know, the, the last things, uh, the end time uh, uh, issues that Paul addresses in those chapters. And we've tried to address it within the context of this letter and not extract from here, there, and another and just have us jumping all over the place. We've tried to do that, and I may have failed to some degree, but that was my intent and my purpose. Uh, I felt like that was the way I needed to honor God and in working our way through this scripture. And so today uh, we are at a portion of this letter in 1 Thessalonians where the Apostle Paul is closing this letter. And if you're like me and you're about to say what you may perceive to be the last things that you may say to someone, you want to make sure that you're saying the most important things to them at the very end, Right? Right? If I told you you had one last conversation to have with those that you love, one last conversation, what is it that you would say? You would sharpen your thoughts, your words would be concise, and man, you would deliver what needed to be delivered at that moment, leaving them no doubt about what was the most important thing that you had to say to them, right? Right? So the Apostle Paul is right there, and he's about to address some things that I think moving forward will do more for this young church than any view on eschatology would do, and it's about their own private individual lives and their response to God. All right, you with me? Hello, (laughs) Shelly. I didn't see her. She just surprised me. She just popped up out of Ohio or Indiana where she's living now. Where is it? Indiana, okay. We have a Hoosier in the house. Lord Jesus, touch her. But hey, uh, all all jokes aside, so we're going to open up this scripture, okay? And it's only going to be a a handful of verses. It's not going to be, we're not going to cover everything. And before we even get into that, I I need to say something because I I need you to understand my heart here. Uh, Terry knows, I have communicated this to her and I've tried to communicate this to a lot of people and, and I think you'll understand what I'm saying to be true, one of the absolute worst ways to communicate or at least uh, uh, do any type of conflict resolution is via text. <laughs> Have any of you ever tried to resolve a conflict or address a, a, a significant troubled issue via text? And it completely and utterly blows up in your face because the reader of the text injects your emotions into the text that you never intended to be with those words, right? You know what I'm talking about, Gus? You know what I'm saying? And, and so it's, it's very, very difficult to convey in those words uh, the, the, the emotion that you're trying to invoke, uh, the posture you're trying to take, and the perspective that you're speaking from. So let me go ahead and give you this. Never resolve conflict in text. Right? I don't think the Scripture would call for it. I don't think Jesus ever said, if your brother has, has an issue against you or you're offended them, text them. Right? So I'm just going to go ahead and drop that on you and say, that's just a little nugget. Put in your purse or in your wallet. And when that time comes and that situation arises, don't do that. Okay? Now, the reason I say that is to preface the use over and over and over again, you'll hear from the pulpit in regards to certain words in the scripture, and we'll reference. And it's not to make one sound or look intelligent. We'll reference Greek words, right? And you'll hear me say, "Well, the Greek, the Greek, the Greek." And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, "You're Greek, Trent." I know. But the reality is, when we When we dig into that original wording, what we're trying to do is encapsulate the emotions, the posture, and the perspective that the writer was trying to deliver when they originally wrote the letter. Sometimes we read through certain scriptures and we do not understand the posture, the, the emotion, and the perspective because we've lost sight of the original meaning. So I do not want to bore you to death by saying, well, uh, uh, what, whatever word, dunamis or duname or, or any of those words or, or uh, hooperec parasols or any of... Th- It's not to drag you around trying to understand these words. It's to try to paint a picture that is more accurate with what it is that we're studying. Are you with me? Okay, so no one's up here blowing themselves up, trying to be anything they're not. I simply want you to understand what I understand at least. And that's not to say to understand a lot, to understand what I do but I want you to understand as much as I can communicate, okay? With whatever limitations I have. And and so now, having said all that, let's open up the scripture. And we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul's about to address them through these few verses. And what I want you guys to know before we even read those, what he's about to address here really speaks to symbiotic growth. Now, I don't know how many of you know what the word symbiotic means. I know Drew does because he's a Spider-Man fan, and he knows who Venom is, and he's symbiotic in a sense. So Drew's over there thinking, yeah, I know what symbiotic is. I'm a comic book reader, right? Let me tell you something, and when I say this, you're going to say, oh, yeah, been there, done that. There's two, there's really two measures or categories of relational growth, I I do believe. One is symbiotic, and symbiotic is, by definition, the growth occurring between two organisms to the benefit of both organisms, right? Any science teachers out there, right, biology teacher, whatever, right? You don't understand And then there's another form of growth that is called parasitic. And you're like, ooh, parasitic. (laughs) Parasitic growth is the growth occurred by one organism who has attached or fed itself off of a host organism to the detriment of the host organism. You with me? The Apostle Paul in these few verses makes it clear That we are, as the body of Christ, called to a life of symbiotic growth. A growth that is shared and is experienced jointly with one another. And you say, well Trent, I don't really see a lot of parasitic or uh, growth in the church or even a parasitic type mindset in the church. And I would say to you, oh yes you have, you just may not have recognized it. As a matter of fact, I'm going to give you a little illustration of parasitic statements that you might hear within Christendom amongst those who dare to journey the social platforms. Right? I had just seen multiple people had posted this, so I'm not speaking to one given individual. This was probably tagged and probably shared. And a lot of people would say, "Uh, man, that sounds about right. And the statement that I had seen on one of these social platforms was this statement. Surround yourself with people who will tear the roof off for you. Anybody read that? You see that? That's parasitic. Symbiotic would say, be that friend who would tear the roof off. You understand what I'm saying? You got that? You see the difference? It's not surrounding yourself just for your benefit, but it's becoming a benefit to other people and understanding even though you have your own needs. Symbiotic growth in the church isn't a growth that denies your own needs and your own deficiencies. Symbiotic growth basically says, in the midst of my own needs, I will not surrender to them And I will continue, even needing myself, look to aid and assist others who are in need. Why? Because if you're waiting for yourself to be needless before you help those who are needy, you will never, ever help or engage or be a benefit to the growth of another person. Because we will always have a level of need within us. So we have to function in a symbiotic role, understanding what our needs are, and still be able to reach into Kevin's needs as he reaches into my needs, and this thing becomes reciprocated, and we grow together. Right? All right. Now we're going to start the sermon. Right? All right. First Thessalonians chapter 5. 12 through 15. Amen. That's four verses counting 12. Okay. Watch this. Watch this. Now let me go ahead and say this before I read this. This is a self-serving message. I thank God that Ben spoke for me a couple weeks ago that this scripture didn't land last week Unquote, unquote, pastor appreciation. And you'll understand why. Listen to this. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. Okay? And we urge you, brothers and sisters, Warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. This is Paul's exit strategy out of this letter, and he's dropping and closing this thing out with these stout words of symbiotic growth, responsibility, one to another. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, steady my stammering, stuttering tongue. The heart palpitations, the racing of my mind, the tendency to jump off track, all of these things, Lord, are at work in me. And I bring them, Lord, into submission to your spirit. And I say, Lord, in in the frail disposition of my own person, Lord, would you speak in spite of all that? Would you love them and share with them and move upon their hearts in spite of all that, we need you to do that for their sake and for my sake and for the kingdom's sake. It's in the name of Jesus, Father, we ask you these very things. And the sons and daughters of God said, Amen. 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 Okay, let's look at these first two verses, okay? These first two verses. Now understand We're making an application outside of me or those you see who are in leadership here. Though the application is there, don't get stuck on that mindset, okay? Because it transcends even more than that. So this is what it says. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you, Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. And then he says, because of their, and then he says, he moves away from them. And he says, live in peace with each other. Okay. Now, here's, here's one of the things I want you to see right off the bat. And here's a reference to the Greek. It, it is the word, Eroteo? When he says, now we ask you, it is the Greek word eroteo, and it means to make a request from someone with a special footing or a preferred position. Basically, the apostle Paul making this very statement when he says, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters. He is in an authoritative uh, position. He is an apostle called by God for this very service. Not everyone were apostles, but he was an apostle. And he has the right and the charge by God to make authoritative statements and give authoritative direction. But instead, instead, what the word actually means is that he makes a humble plea. He detaches, disengages from that posture of authority to encompass a posture of humility. And instead of commanding them, he pleads with them. That is the kind of leader and leaders that I need to be and you need to be within the realm of our lives. Under the authority of God, but carrying out the authority of God with humility. And the Apostle Paul, though authoritative, chooses humility. And he says this, to acknowledge those who work hard among you. Simply meaning, simply meaning to appreciate those who toil in works in the body and the mind among you and for you. And you say, oh, you're talking about yourself, Trent? Is all? No. Do you know how many people in this church work and toil amongst you to your benefit? The vast majority, the vast majority of people are serving behind the scenes. I can almost guarantee you with the utmost of certainty that percentage, percentage-wise, ratio-wise... There's probably not another church in this entire area that has the that that has the working force, serving force, the volunteer force that this church has to carry out the responsibilities of this church amongst so few people. I know, I see it. I know what's going on behind the scenes. I know who's putting in the time. I know who's toiling who's working, who's volunteering at the last minute to cover one another. When a need arises downstairs, somebody in a symbiotic fashion says, I'll step into that and cover my brother or my sister. Why? Because they would step into it for me. He says, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, I need to just calm down. Calm down, let me, let me, this ain't some Eastern mysticism breathing technique, man. My heart's racing, I just need to settle down. Don't fishy, I need to settle down a little bit. Fishy said, no, fishy don't care if I have a heart attack? <laughs> she said, no, no, go ahead and stroke out a pair. We'll have something to talk about when we go home this evening. What happened to Trent when he fell off the platform? He says, who care for you in the Lord. Prostemi, it literally means shepherding, going before, leading, not behind and driving. Before the dangers. Before the snares. Who are willing to shield you, protect you, Guard you, guard you in the Lord. And who admonish you? Literally meaning, it's the idea of warning to protect you. Warning to protect you. I've, uh, I've sat with people and I've said to them, the decision you're about to make, or the path you're about to travel, the choice that's before you that you're leaning towards will not work out. That path will destroy you. That path will strip you of your person, your value. It'll strip you of everything that God wants to do for you. I have said and I have worn through tears Warn. I mean, pleading and begging people, trying to reason with people, and that's what Paul was talking about there. And you've done the same. Those who admonish you, and he says, hold them in the highest regard. Listen in love. Hold the, Hold them in the highest regard in love. It doesn't mean if they're perfect, hold them in the highest regard. It doesn't mean if they're flawless, hold them in the highest regard. It doesn't mean if every sermon is perfect in 35 minutes, the Lord knows I would not be held in highest regard. He said, hold them in highest regard in love. because you would want to be held in highest regard and love with all of your shortcomings, frailties, and failures. I would do my very best, and we would do our very best as a symbiotic growth church, not to turn a blind eye to poor decision-making, but will help you navigate out of seasons of poor decision-making to bring you to a place of wholeness and security and confidence in God, He said, hold them in highest regard in love because of their work. And then he says something that's really, it just seems like it kind of jumps off the rails. And he says this. Live in peace with each other. Live in peace. We're talking about this leadership, we're talking about all this. Then all of a sudden he jumps off the rails and he says, live at peace with each other. Now why is he saying that? I'm going to tell you why he's saying that. First, he's referencing this young leadership team over a church that was born in Thessalonica over a period of three weeks. And he's saying, come alongside of them. Love them, encourage them, esteem them in love because of the work that they're doing. And then he says this, live at peace with each other. Why? Because a young leadership group, the last thing they need in Thessalonica under the persecution, under the death penalty, under the beatings and the false imprisonment, is to have to engage in a church that is hostile towards one another. He's literally saying, for these people that God has assigned in your care, don't make it hard, right? Right, you get this? Trent, this seems a little too personal to you this morning. It's not you, but I've seen this. Jay has seen this. Pastor after pastor, minister after minister, leader after leader, pouring their heart out, running thin, doing all they can. And then they're vanquished, and they fall off to the side, and they find themselves exiting the ministry. Not because the world has despised them and wounded them, but the church, man, the lack of peace and continuity and brotherly love that is absent within the pews of the churches is exhausting. Paul says to live at peace with one another. Now there's something that shifts in that statement, and it's this. Unlike the previous verses, when he says live at peace with each other, it is present imperative, which identifies two things. It identifies it the first. This is not a suggestion. No longer. This is a command. This is a command at this point. He shifts from a posture of humility regarding himself and then shifts into a posture of the present imperative, that being a command. Why? For those over them. Paul knows he's leaving. He's gone. And he's saying at this point, I command you, this isn't an option, this isn't multiple choice, I command you to live at peace with one another, and secondly, this is a perpetual responsibility, not simply to make peace, but to maintain peace. The Greek word for peace there. Araneo is derived from the verb ero, which means to bind or join together that which is broken or divided. The perfect example of this, and I referenced this just a few weeks ago, It's like when you see those x-rays of those fractured bones and you see the separation of bones. Many of you have seen those x-rays, right? Many of you have had those x-rays. Doctor comes in, your fingers swollen together, your toes swollen together. He slaps that x-ray up there and you see the separation of the bones. You see the fracture and it's a clear break. The image that Paul is talking about when he's talking about maintaining the piece, there, maintaining, it is the idea of taking these two broken pieces. And when he says to maintain, it is not to loosen your grip. I will hold it. Together in God until it is one. Hence, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount what? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Paul gives this command, be at peace with one another. And then he says, and watch this, all of these are present imperatives. All of these are following our commands. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Ataktos. In the Greek. In the Greek, that's actually two words. Some of your translations will render that idle. Anybody here have a translation that renders that with just one word that says idle? Do you know why my translation renders that with two words, idle and disruptive? It's because the Greek word that is used there literally means disruptive slack. Or idleness that produces slack. And you say, okay, Trent. The Apostle Paul says to these cats, right? He says to them, one of those who are idle and disruptive. One those who out of slack are producing a disruption. Not just in their church, but in their lives. Listen, and I say this to you with, with I mean my heart's out there, man. When we slack on the thing that God is doing and desiring to do in and through us, there is a disruption that takes place. Within our lives, this idleness will create this disruption. The sad thing about it is the disruption doesn't stop with you. This idleness or this slack in not pursuing the thing that God has called us to can create a generational disruption where you'll see people who have resisted the call of God, the direction of God, and all of a sudden their children's lives are disrupted. Their grandchildren. And it becomes generational. And you can almost track it all the way back to where one grandparent or one great-grandparent said to God, no. And you can watch the generations unravel after that. And the apostle Paul said to that individual his idol, who is slack, who is disruptive, to that individual, warn them. Why do you warn them? Because the cost is greater than they understand. Yeah. Warn them. I know what you're thinking, boy. Well, Trent's arm's doing good. Praise God, it is. Warn them. I, uh, I. I've seen this. You've seen this, where the idleness and the slack has created the disruption. There's there's something. Uh, that me and you, all of us who have ever purchased anything, uh, understand that if you've ever paid any amount of money for any given product, uh, you always read that little warranty down at the bottom of that product or at the, the bottom of that box. I'm not talking about reading instructions, man. You're talking about reading warranties, Brandon. And the warranty will say something along the lines of this. The warranty is rendered void if said item is used out of its purpose and design or abused by the owner. Right? You know what we do sometimes? We are designed for a purpose. We know this, right? Created, equipped for every good work is what the scripture says. God has designed. And what we do is we take this item that the great creator has created with this purpose and we want to try to flesh out some other purpose. And we want to try to flesh out some other design. And we want to use it in a different way. And then when everything falls apart, we come back to the master creator and we're saying, but aren't we under warranty? You need to step in and, and resolve this disruption. You need to... And we do this over and over and over again with the expectation that at some point God's just going to step back in. He's just going to clean up the mess. But that's not what Galatians 6, 7 says. It doesn't say that. You know what it says? In regards to our slack and our disruption, Paul says, do not be deceived. Whatsoever a man sows. You want to sow slack and disruption? So a man will reap slack and disruption. And yet we look at God as though he's an extended warranty in our lives. So fix this mess so I can mess it up again. And God's not called us into that. He's not called us into that. He's called us to find our place within the design and the purpose. That is the place I need to be and that's the place you need to be. There is no better place than to be in the place you're designed to be in. Have you ever took a flathead screwdriver and try to get a Phillips screw out? Of course I have, tricks because I, I can't find my Phillips. And then before long, brother, you know what I'm talking about back there, Chris. You strip out that Phillips screw, right? And then you got that hammer and you got that flathead. You try to beat in grooves to get that out. You know why? That flathead was never designed to pull out that Phillips screw. And no matter how much you squeeze, push, push, you may eventually get it out, but it's going to cost you more effort than it should have, had you been using the right tool to do the right job. And so it is with our lives. There's a purpose. And and so he says to them, warn these cats, warn these jokers not to be slagging, be disruptive. And then he says this, and it too is a present imperative. He says, help the weak. Meaning without strength. Help the weak. You know what that implies? He's going to give you the strength. How can the weak? How can you give if you don't have it? How can you come alongside? Because God's going to grant you the strength. Right? And then those seasons when you're weak, if we're symbiotic, God's going to grant another strength and He's going to come along with you when you're weak. He's going to strengthen you. Help the weak. And then He says, Be patient with everyone. Wife, husband, Trent, Carrie. Be patient with everyone. Present imperative, command, means long tempered to defer anger. Even under justifiable conditions that would generate an angry response, when he says to be patient with everyone, he's saying the anger is justified, defer it. Meaning to take it off the table to the benefit of that other individual and place it on the back burner to defer the anger. Why is he saying be patient with everyone? Because life will try you. Right? Service will try you. Loving, <laughs> every loving will try you. And when he says be patient with everyone, he's saying there's going to arise situations where this is going to be needed to be done. He's not asking you to, to skirt around and, and try to navigate navigate around situations where patience and this he's saying life is coming and I'm commanding you telling you when it arises under those conditions defer the anger be patient you can't hide from it that's what he's saying and so when it come, when it comes be patient with everyone and we're actually on the last verse. What time is it? Anybody got a time? It's 12.23. This is, I'm ahead of schedule. Let me pause. I don't want to spoil you into thinking you're getting out of here at 12.30 every Sunday. I'll sit here until 12.30 right now. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 15 says this. Make sure that nobody pays back. Wrong for wrong. The implication is this. You will be wronged. But you're not responsible for the wrong that's done to you. As followers and symbiotic brothers and sisters in Jesus, we're only responsible for how we respond to how we've been wronged. And that becomes the great clarifier of whose we are. Man, you start separating yourself in regards to who owns you when you start responding to the wrong done unto you without wronging them back. That ain't easy, is it? Yet we're responsible for that. And then he says this. But always strive To do what is good for each other. That's the body. And for everyone else. That's the world. Did you see the the two party application? Do good to one another, to each other, to your brothers and your sisters. This shouldn't be hard. But we make it hard when we're parasitic because all we can see is ourselves, right? But when we're symbiotic and we can see other people and we understand it is to our benefit to extend that type of love to them because it will be reciprocated. That's the nature of God's people. It eases that somewhat. And then he says and for everyone else in the world out there. I love the word that Paul uses here. He says to strive in the Greek, dioko. It means to aggressively chase like a hunter pursuing a catch. Strive. Lean in. Like Dwayne would chase that deer across the field. With or without tag. I kid, I, it's a joke, Dwayne, we will not turn you in. Pursuing, striving. Now listen, I'll say this in, in closing. Every four years, there's a, an event that takes place that I absolutely love. I mean, it just takes me in. No, it's not elections. Matter of fact, that drives me crazy. But it's the Summer Olympics. I absolutely love the Summer Olympics. Because in the Summer Olympics, there's one event, there's, there, though there's many events, there's one event that settles one question that Trent Evans always finds himself asking every four years. Who is the fastest man on the planet? Why would Trent Cheetah Evans want to know that? Because at one time, Trent Evans thought he was the fastest man on the planet. So I want to know who is the fastest man on the planet. And they have a 100-meter race. I remember a few years ago Tyson Gay, uh, born right here in the state of Kentucky, ran in those races in the the early 2000s in in the teens. I remember uh, Usain Bolt declared year after year from competition after competition, Olympic after Olympic, to be the fastest man on the planet, literally meaning Usain Bolt would stand on that podium receiving that gold medal and would invite all extraterrestrials into the earth to shout, I am the representative of this planet. I am the fastest man. But to obtain that title, there's a part of the race that many of us do not realize is how the winner is determined in the 100 meter race, in the 200, in the 400, in every other race in the Olympics. For the Olympics have a different standard than some racing organizations. You know what that standard is? It is not the man whose head crosses the line first. This ain't horse racing man. It isn't the man whose hands crosses the lines first. It is not the man whose feet crosses the line first. Do you know what determines do you know what determines the winner in the Olympic games? His torso. The heart of the runner must cross the line first. And whoever Possesses that heart, that torso that crosses the line first, is then declared the winner and potentially the fastest man on the planet. You say, Trent, what is the application to what the Apostle Paul is saying when he says to them, strive to do what, what is good? The Apostle Paul, the imagery that I would like to paint for you is one who is pushing and leaning with their heart out front in love, desiring to be a symbiotic member of the body of Jesus. But some of us run with our hands. Some of us run with our minds. Some of us run with our our feet. And Paul's call to this Thessalonian church who is just an infant church is to strive. To put your heart out there. You see it, right? Give it that finish line. You see it, right? I'm not going to do it because I'm hurt myself. But you... Oh, when Jesus comes for Trent, may he find me like this, leaning to finish strong <laughs> i want all of you to be found just like that striving to finish strong stand with me stand with me oh, sweet jesus sweet jesus sweet jesus it's 12:31 uh, <laughs> Not that I can it really don't matter to me. And you know it. But my prayer for each of you, for every husband, for every wife, for every son, for every daughter. I promise you. Is this. With your heads bowed just for a moment, let's just call to to our Father. Father, in the name of Jesus, your sons and daughters approach you this morning with a desire, oh God, to strive, to strive, to strive. To strive, led, Lord, by our hearts that have been transformed by you. May it not be our intellect that simply moves us or our skills of our hand or the rapid pace that our feet move us with. May none of those things be the cause agent, but may a transformed heart by the power of Jesus, be the cause agent of a symbiotic experience with one another as children of God. In those times, Lord, when we're on the weak side of the scale, let us receive graciously with humility the strength of others with the intention as you strengthen us that we would rise to the occasion when they find themselves on the low end of the scales to give to them. May we be that type of people. May our marriages be those types of marriages. May our families be those types of families. May the parasitic influence and spirit on the church be destroyed. In the name of Jesus, may it be destroyed. So, Father, you hear the cries of our hearts. And, Father, today, I speak to you as I speak to them, Lord, out of honoring you. With our heads bowed our eyes closed, no one looking up, do not look up, do not look up. If we confess with our mouths that Christ is Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised Him from the dead, we shall be saved. That's the gift that Jesus has given, the Father has given in Jesus. It's a gift. There's not a whole lot of working going on in receiving that gift. It's just opening up your heart and your mind, your spirit, and saying... I need that gift. I need it. I recognize I need it. I want that gift. I receive that gift. If that is you this morning, I'm not going to, listen, there's no bait and switch. I'm not going to ask you to come up here after you raise your hand. But I want to ask you this morning, if that is you this morning and you're saying, I acknowledge that I'm so distant from God and I need that gift. And today, Trent, I want to receive that gift. If that's you this morning, just raise your hand. No one's looking. Just raise your hand. It's okay. Just raise your hand. Okay. Okay, my brother, my sister. All right. So, Father, in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. You see the hand, hands raised that represent a posture in their spirit that acknowledges their own inability to get to you and receive the great divine effort that you have made to get to them. And so they're saying with that raised hand that I trust the work of the cross, that the power of the resurrection is at work in me, that same Spirit that raised Christ resides in me and will raise me to new life. I pray, Father, that as they pray to you and they embrace and accept your work, may that so energize them and so radically change them that they would become that symbiotic force within the body of Christ, looking, looking to give and to serve and to be present amongst your children, to cooperate with your purpose and your plan, rejecting idleness and slack and disruption, conceding to whatever directive you give them, Oh, God, do this for them. Continue to do it for each of us who have called upon the name of Jesus. And so, Father, we bless you this morning. And we thank you for everything you have said and done this morning through your word. And it's in Jesus' name. We ask these things. And the sons and daughters of God said amen. Hey, hey, before you leave, listen.